Today I want to talk to you about a simple rule for a complex world. And the reason I chose this topic is, is part worry and part hope. Here's the worry. Our, our nation is facing a lot of challenges that it needs to address, and we don't seem to be doing it very well. You know what I mean? We don't seem to be particularly nice to one another, kind, truthful, civic-minded, public-spirited. It just seems that there's a lot of nastiness out there. And what's worse for me as a person who for a long time has tried to follow Jesus Christ and as a pastor, what worries me is that Christians, far from contributing to solving that problem, often seem to be contributing to that problem. And that's worrisome to me because I don't think that that reflects well on Jesus, whom we claim to follow. So that's the worry. Our nation isn't doing particularly good at talking about the important problems that it needs to solve, and Christians aren't really helping, or at least some Christians aren't really helping, and we're giving a bad name to Jesus. The hope, however, is that by focusing on what Jesus taught about how we ought to live, not only can we as people who have decided to follow Jesus, as we who claim to be Christians, who attend church, not only can we get a better sense of what we ought to do and live a better way, but we can show that Jesus is relevant to the problems that we're facing because Jesus isn't only our Savior, and we should never underestimate that or we should never underplay the importance of that, but Jesus is also our teacher showing us a wise way to live. And I think that the, the brilliance of Jesus as a teacher can be shown in the way that he taught us a simple rule for living in a very complex world. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to take a look at three passages real quickly in the New Testament that outline what this simple rule is. Two are from Jesus himself, and one is from one of his chief followers in the early church, the Apostle Paul. So passage number one is Matthew 7, 12. And this is really what I think is the essence of Jesus' simple rule for living in a complex world. We call it the golden rule. And this is what Jesus says. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The golden rule is just simply do to others what you would have them do to you. Second passage, turn a few chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. This is what's known as the Great Commandment. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, which was one group of theologians in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, which is another group of theologians in Jesus' day, got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? What is the one thing that we cannot not do, he was asking Jesus. Interestingly enough, Jesus replied by quoting two passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, which is to say all of Scripture, hang on these two commandments. Final passage from the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. 
And Paul writes to the church at Rome, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, and now he quotes some of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Notice there the agreement with Jesus. But Paul adds this, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. All of these passages, these three passages, are circling around basically a simple rule. They state it in different ways. The golden rule says, do to others what you would have them do to, to you. The great commandment says, love your neighbors as yourself. And Paul says, love does no harm to a neighbor. And so you have the golden rule, the great commandment, and what I would call the harm principle. Do not do harm to a neighbor. And all three of these passages say that this is the entirety of the way that God wants you to treat people. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but according to Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments in Old Testament Scripture. That's a lot of commandments. Uh, some people have said that there are 365 negative commandments, thou shalt not, and 248 positive commandments. I don't know if that's correct. I have not counted them. That's a very difficult inter enterprise. But can you imagine if every time you went to solve some problem or figure out how to treat somebody, you had to run through a grid of 613 commandments? Can you imagine that? Somebody, somebody at work does something, and you're like, oh, man, what should I do? Okay, number one, no, that doesn't apply. Number two, no, that doesn't apply. Number three, no. Number 349, no, that. And, you, and it's always going to be the 612th commandment, right? And so Jesus, like other Jewish religious teachers in his day, tried to summarize the intent of the law so that you could have a simple rule for always doing the right thing. And what I love about the golden rule, the great commandment, the harm principle, what I'm just calling a simple rule for a complex world, is that it's simple. You can remember them easily. You do not have to be a genius of memorization to remember, do to others what you would have them do to you, right? You don't have to run through a grid of 613 commandments. You just have to keep this one thing in mind, and you will always know how to treat people. So it's simple. It's proactive. You are told to do, and you are told to love. It's interesting that other Jewish teachers in Jesus' day also summarized the entirety of the law in a similar way. There was a, there's an example from the Talmud, which is a collection of, of Jewish writings after the period of Jesus, but it often reflects teaching before Jesus. And there was this great Jewish sage named Hillel. And Hillel was born and lived in the century before Jesus. And there was another sage that, who was kind of like his theological sparring partner, and that guy's name was Shammai. And they were the two sort of poles of opinion in Judaism before Jesus. And one day a Gentile came to them and, they, and, and the Gentile said to them, I want to convert to Judaism, but I will only do so if you can explain the entire law to me while I am standing on one foot. You know, 613 commandments. Go! <laughs> so Shammai, who just loved to complexify things, just chased the guy away. This, this Gentile, he's never going to be a convert. Hillel was a very wise man, and you can almost imagine a smile coming to his face, and he kind of cocks his head to the side, and he looked at him, and he said, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to others. That is the whole law. 
Everything else is commentary. Now notice how similar that is to what Jesus teaches, except that it's negative. Do not do. Jesus is positive. He's proactive. Do to others what you would have them do to you. So you have a simple rule. You have a proactive rule. This rule is fair. You're not asking for special treatment. You're just saying, however I want to be treated is how I want others to be treated. I'm going to treat people the way that I want them to treat me. Not only is this simple rule uh, fair, it's universal. It includes everybody and every situation, you know. Uh, Not only that, it's virtuous. It's coming from a motive of love. Not only that, it's helpful because its intention is to promote people's well-being, not their harm. And finally, it's absolute. Jesus says, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. Just as a fun little philosophical exercise, when you go home today, I want you to spend an hour thinking. I know that may be weird, But just sit in your most comfortable chair, turn off the TV, turn off the radio, tell the kids to go play down the block, and just think for an hour. And I want you to try to come up with a situation where you can violate the golden rule and be doing the right thing. I can't come up with one because it is a universal and an absolute principle. If you want to know the right thing to do in any situation, simply follow what Jesus says. Do to others what you would have them do to you. That's the simple rule for a complex world. Easy peasy. All done. You can leave. We've got 20 minutes. Go get a donut. Go get some coffee, right? Of course not. This is a sermon. I have to go for another hour and a half. (laughs) Here's the interesting question that I want you to ask yourself. The rule is simple. Can we all agree on that? Do to others as you would have them do to you. Easy, simple. Why is it then that we don't do it all the time? That's the challenging question. Why is it that we often treat our spouse or our children or our parents or our neighbors or our co-workers or people on the other side of the political aisle or people who are not from our country Why do we treat them in a way that we would never want them to treat us? Do you see the problem? Now, I I know that all of you are saying, well, I don't have this problem, so the rest of the sermon is for the guy sitting next to you, okay? (laughs) But I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we often do this. My wife, uh, and and by the way, marrying well is just a, a joy in life, and, and you know you have married well when your wife can point out when you're doing something wrong and you still love her. And so my wife on driving habits always points out to me how I do not apply the golden rule. George, do you know just, you just cut that guy off? He was taking too long. I didn't want to wait. But when somebody cuts me off, it's like, whoa. I, I pray all the imprecatory psalms calling God's wrath down upon the malefactor uh, on the road. So you may not have the problem, but the guy next to you do, and I, I know I do, so this sermon maybe is for me, and if, if you learn something, that's great. So we have this simple rule, but why is it we don't put it into practice? Well, let me reverse engineer that question and simply say, okay, we know what the simple rule is, so how is it that we can put it into practice more? That's what I want to focus in on the rest of the sermon. And there are five things I want you to really think about and do uh, in order to put into practice this simple rule. 
Again, with the hope that by changing the way that you act and interact with other people, that this will set a higher, better standard for the people around you and that we can be like a good influence on our community and hopefully on our state and hopefully on our nation so that we can address these challenging problems that we face but do so in a rational, calm, ethical manner. So here's the first thing that I would suggest about how you can put into practice a simple rule for a complex world. And the first thing is this. You need to act reflectively rather than reflexively. You need to act reflectively rather than reflexively. What do I mean by this? Um, If you go to the doctor for your annual physical, you know he gets out that little, tiny little hammer, right? The little, I don't even know what it's called. It's probably called a mallet. It doesn't look like a mallet. It looks like something my four-year-old would play with, but it is an actual medical instrument. And I'll have you sit down, and then he'll tap your knees. And I always love this because, you know, I'm a philosophical kind of guy, and so I'll look down, and I'll watch. Knee will be up, and he'll hit it with a mallet, and then he'll go boom, and I will think to myself, I did not make it do that. (laughs) How did that happen? I wasn't thinking. There comes the mallet. Oh, I felt the mallet. Now, knee, move, move, move. We have a lot of bodily processes that take place reflexively. They happen automatically, instinctually, habitually. We don't have to think about them. If I took this bottle of water and I threw it at somebody, they would do what? Flinch. Would they think about flinching? No. Why? Because Your body, your brain is like a computer operating system. There's all sorts of complex operations taking place in the background so that you can get on with life. You cannot actually think about all the things that you have to do. Uh, I've been staying with my in-laws. Another thing about marriage, just in case you are thinking about marriage, is um, obviously you want to love the person that you're thinking about marrying, but you've got to get along with your in-laws. Your in-laws will make or break your marriage, so I'm, I'm glad to say that I have wonderful in-laws, Joe and Cindy, and I love to come out and, and stay with them. They live just up the street off Walker, so I walked to church this morning, and I was practicing my sermon. And so if you were driving along Walker, you might have seen me gesturing and talking to myself. <laughs> Somebody has suggested that I get one of those earbuds so that people don't think I'm crazy, but I process things literally by talking to myself, Right? Now, what's interesting is that if you're thinking about a sermon and you're talking to yourself and you're gesturing to yourself and you're doing that while you're walking, what are you not thinking about? Walking. Now, it would be hilarious if I ran into a pole and and I could tell you that story. But in fact, I successfully navigated a mile journey without running into anything, and I never thought about it at all because I was acting reflexively. God designed us to have good reflexes. He designed our brains to run in the background so we can do complex uh, actions without thinking about them. That's great. It's unavoidable. It's just part of life. The problem is what when you get malware in your operating system? (laughs) And that malware starts deforming the operations of the applications you open up. And where do these things come from? Well, maybe it comes from your upbringing. Maybe it comes from your addictions. The New Testament talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil as three big structures in life that misshape 
the way that we act and think and feel and behave. And so when that happens, sometimes you need to realize that your operating system is leading you to reflexive actions and you need to rise above the reflexivity and you need to start reflecting on the operating system. You need to start saying, hey, you know what? My applications are glitching a lot. I open up the marriage app and instead of being a blessing, it's just, it's just awful. I open up the parenting app and I've got kids who don't listen to me and don't respect me and, and I'm pulling my hair out and I don't know what to do. You open up the business app and all of a sudden you're saying, oh, well, you know, <laughs> nobody will notice that I've been taking uh, staplers from the office pool and selling them on eBay or whatever it is people do. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we need to realize that there are glitches in our reflexive responses and we need to think about those things. The problem is we often don't think about our behavior. And that's why I love this simple rule. If you're experiencing a glitch in your applications in life right now, to use that metaphor, your marriage isn't working right, your parenting isn't working right, you're not getting the desired outcomes in your relationships or in your business partnerships or in your work life, whatever it is, if you're experiencing a lot of conflict, if you're experiencing a lot of backstabbing, if you're experiencing a lot of depression because you're looking around and you're saying, my relationships are not a source of joy, they're a source of angst, stop for a second and look reflectively on the way that you're acting and ask yourself, am I in all of these relationships carrying out this simple rule? Am I treating my spouse the way I want my spouse to treat me? Am I treating my children the way I want my children to treat me? And I recognize parents have a, a special responsibility to guide their children, but Paul says to fathers especially, don't exasperate your children right? Am I interacting with my friends and my neighbors and my business partners in a way that I would want them to treat me? Because if you can rise above your reflexive responses and you can reflect on the way you're actually treating people and responding to them, and if you can realize, oh, I'm not treating others the way that I want to be treated, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself, and I am doing harm, guess what? Once you know what the problem is, you can solve the problem, right? You know, Jesus is our teacher. We need to listen when he teaches. And when he says this sums up the entire law and the prophets, we need to follow that teaching. So first of all, act reflectively rather than reflexively. Here's the second thing. We need to act self-referentially, but not selfishly. Now, we know what selfishly means. When you act selfishly, you act as if you are the only person that matters, right? And so you say, all that matters is how I feel, how I am treated, what is done to me, etc. Now, one of the mistakes that sometimes Christians make is they think the opposite of selfishly is selflessly, that I just don't have any self whatsoever. And, and I want to tell you, if you're struggling with this, with this sense of self-worth, God made you in his image. And God doesn't make junk. The Father sent Jesus into the world to save you. He doesn't go to save junk. He goes to save his image. 
The Spirit comes into the world to make us more like Jesus because the Spirit thinks that we are worth redeeming and transforming. So you are not nothing, and you are not everything, but you are something, and that something, that someone, that that somebody that you are, you need to take into account when you start treating other people because you want to act in reference to yourself, but without acting selfishly. And so we find in the Old Testament law, we find in Jesus, commandments like love your neighbor as yourself. Paul says to husbands, as he's talking to them about how to treat their wives, nobody who loves themselves fails to care for their body or feed themselves. If you love yourself, you will care for yourself. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you will care for them. And so you have to take yourself, the fact that you're made in the image of God and redeemed by Christ, you have to take that into account. So love your neighbors yourself. But the law goes on to say, and it's not just the neighbors, it's not just the people like you, you need to love the foreigner, the stranger as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 says love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.34 says love the foreigner as yourself. Your neighborhood doesn't stop at the borders of the United States. Your neighbors are people who live in other countries and in other parts of the world, who come from other parts of the world, who practice different religions, who are not like you. But Jesus, again, affirms that tradition, but he goes beyond it. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he not only says, love your neighbor, love the stranger, he says, love your enemy. Even the people who are against you, who cause you grief, who make your life hard. Jesus is saying it's not right to treat them in a way that you wouldn't want them to treat you. And that's powerful. You want to know what the solution to the world's problems is? It's right there. And so when you act, not only do you want to reflect on your actions, but you want to take yourself into account, but you want to see that how you treat people needs to radiate out from you to your neighbors to foreigners to enemies. Because a simple rule is universal. It applies to how you treat all people. The third thing that you need to do is you need to act with long-term thinking, not short-term thinking. I have a -a four-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Her name is Allie. Allie has no sense of the future. If she wants candy, and that child loves candy, if she wants candy, she wants it right now. And if she doesn't get it right now, even though we have a, a little thing in her room that she shares with her sister that says, though she is tiny, she is fierce. And you could put my four-and-a-half-year-old in the cage with a grizzly bear, and my money would be on Allie. (laughs) And so there are times when we have been in stores. I I remember this happens to my wife more. Um, We we live in a part of the the United States that does not have Costco, I'm I'm, uh, sorry to say. I, I came out here, whenever we visit Southern California, one of the first things we do is we go to Costco to see how the other half lives, right? And, uh... So we shop at Walmart, Neighborhood Market, which is a Walmart company, and Sam's Club. And in my part of the country, uh, the Walmarts aren't like the Walmarts here. I 
if I were here, I wouldn't go to the Walmarts. If you were where I am, you'd go to the Walmarts, mostly because it's the only thing there. But, I mean, you would go to the Walmarts. And I vividly remember, Tiffany texted me one time, and she said, Allie had melted down in the store, was lying on the floor, throwing a tantrum, and Tiffany just walked away. Who, whose kid is this? Who behaves like this, right? And it happened to me in the Sam's Club. We were, we were going out, and Allie was like, she, she didn't get a sample, because, you know, sample day is a big deal at Costco, at Sam's Club, everything. She didn't get a sample, and she's, and she's 33 inches tall, about 28, 29 pounds, and, but, I mean, this little ball just radiates negative energy when she gets upset. I just walked away. I'm like, I don't know whose kid that is, you know? But here's the funny thing. We, we, we kind of laugh or we get annoyed when it's a four-and-a-half-year-old, but <laughs> what happens when it's a 49-year-old? <laughs> I didn't get my way. How many, how many spousal arguments between husbands and wives happen because one of the two did not get their way right away? Right? I want it, and I want it now. My wife has this saying, she says, some people would rather be right than in relationship. And to me, that's, that kind of gets at the essence of what we're talking about when we talk about short-term versus long-term thinking. Now, you have to understand, I studied philosophy. I love reading philosophy, theology. I like ideas. I, every now and then, my wife says, some people would rather be right than in relationship. I sort of grimace because I'm like, I'd like to be right. I mean, it'd be a lot better than being wrong. Um but I know what she means. Some people want to sacrifice the relationship in order to win the argument right now rather than saying, you know, for the sake of the relationship, we'll just keep things going. And then long-term, the other person changes their mind. Do you understand what I'm saying? Too often, when we look at how we treat people, all we are doing is acting in short-term thinking, short-term gains, gains, and we're not thinking, how is this action going to affect my relationship in the long term? You know, you think of the, the husband who goes to work every day and he starts flirting with a coworker. Feels good in the moment. Oh, well, I didn't do anything wrong. Well, then they start meeting at a restaurant. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Then it comes into a full-blown affair, right? And then that wrecks the marriage. And then he's separated from his kids, doesn't see his kids. His kids grow up bitter at him. 10, 15 years down the road, his life is a wreck. His kids aren't happy with him. There's no joy in his life. Go back to that moment, men. If you're flirting with coworkers and you're not married to that coworker, if you are married to that coworker, flirt away. I mean, I don't really care, right? <laughs> But don't get caught up in the moment of saying, well, it feels good right now. Start thinking, how's this going to affect me an hour from now, a day from now, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now? Because if you're setting in place actions and activities that are going to be bad for you long term, guess what? They violate the simple rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, so that you're setting up long-term good patterns of behavior. Fourth thing, surround yourself with good role models and act like them. I, you know, as a parent, we want our kids to hang around good, good kids. Good kids. You know what I mean. Kids who, you know, are, are in a positive way in life. But, you know, even more than that, I want my kids to be the good kids who influence the bad kids. 
right? I want, I want my kids to be the role models, not the peer followers. But all of us do need to surround ourselves with good role models and, 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 and be a part of a group that acts like those good role models. And at the end of the day, as we start getting really into Jesus, this is why we read our Bibles and why we go to church. Is because when we read the Bible, we see a flawed people whom Jesus uses. And most importantly, we see Jesus himself and we say, I want to be like him. And therefore, I'm going to be part of a church where there's a process of saying, I'm not like him, but I want to become him, so let's move on. This is why I love Celebrate Recovery so much. Sometimes churches just become legalistic and they become self-righteous and they, and they become indifferent to the ways that they're harming other people. Celebrate Recovery and other recovery programs say, I'm messed up and I need help. You know what? Having people who are capable of saying, I was wrong, I am sorry, that's a good role model. And you want to be around people like that who are on that journey. And all of us are on that journey because whether or not all of us are addicts in some way or another, all of us are sinners, and we need to confess our sins, receive Jesus' forgiveness, and follow him more. So find the good role models and act like them. Finally, and I, I, I conclude with this one. I'm going to conclude quickly. And it may sound a little bit too spiritual, but I want you to ask the Holy Spirit for help. You know, so far in talking about this simple rule for a complex world, I've talked about essentially self-help strategies. Do this, do that, do the other thing. But you know, what's interesting is if we are reflective about the way that we behave, we start to realize that our operating system is so corrupt that we need a techie to come in and clean it up. That we need outside help. And this is the role of the Holy Spirit. Ol Halsby, who was a Norwegian spiritual writer, said prayer is asking Jesus into our heart. And we sometimes mean that in terms of conversion. You ask Jesus to come into your heart and you're saved. Al Halsby was saying all prayer, every prayer, is asking Jesus into your heart. Is asking someone to come in from the outside and redeem you and forgive you and tinker with your heart to make it better and more holy and more loving and more like him. And all of you, when you and I try and try and try to put into place Jesus' way of acting, we're going to find that we hit limits because our operating system operates okay for the most part, but when you really get down to it and start to get down and tinker with it, it really is corrupted and it needs outside help. And the greatest thing that you can do when you're in need of help is ask for help. Do to others as you would want them to do to you. If, if, if you need help, then you need to go ahead and ask for it because when others need help, you want to be the kind of person who's there for them. With Jesus, we need to ask for his help, and we need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come in. This is why we worship corporately. This is why we have daily quiet times where we're reading Scripture. This is why we pray. Not to give Jesus a long list of honeydew items. Honey, do this. Honey, do that. Honey, fix him. Honey, fix her. But it's to say, Jesus fix me. Because I want to be a positive influence in my community, and I can do that if I follow you, but to follow you, frankly, Jesus, I need you to carry me.
And Jesus will always do that. And whoever asks for help will always receive it from him. So let's go to prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for your love for us. We are thankful for the genius of Jesus' teaching that he can take very complex issues and simplify them so that we can remember them and we can put them into practice. But Lord, as we rub up against the limits of our ability to change ourselves, help us to turn to him and ask for help so that he can change our hearts because it's out of our hearts that everything flows. Jesus, we ask you into our heart today. Amen.